Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. Our podcast is honored to have senior warfighters from Allied Forces share their experiences and insight. And this episode continues that trend with our guest, Rear Admiral Chris Robinson of the Royal Canadian Navy. Our episode today is focused on the Rim of the Pacific exercise, which is best known as RIMPAC. RIMPAC is held every two years and is hosted by the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. RIMPAC 2022 was led by the commander of the U.S. Third Fleet, who served as the Combined Task Force Commander. Rear Admiral Robinson served as the Deputy Commander of the Combined Task Force, which means that he was second in command of the overall exercise. This year's exercise took place between June 29th and August the 4th, and it comprised 26 nations, 38 surface ships, 4 submarines, 9 national land forces, more than 170 aircraft, and approximately 25,000 personnel. The exercise contributes to the increased interoperability, resiliency, and agility needed by joint and combined forces to deter and defeat aggression by major powers across all domains and all levels of conflict. As the world's largest international maritime exercise, RIMPAC provides a unique training opportunity designed to foster and sustain cooperative relationships that are critical to ensuring the safety of the sea lanes and security on the world's interconnected oceans. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that episodes 19 and 20 of Go Bold also have senior leaders that were part of RIMPAC 2022. Those episodes cover the air component and unmanned surface vessels, so please have a listen to those conversations as well. I think you'll find them really interesting. I'd also like to acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic is a highly diversified company and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. Cubic's training solutions include SPEAR, the next generation of multi-domain training which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. You'll get a sense of why that is important as you listen to this episode. We're thankful that Cubic supports our efforts of sharing stories from senior warfighters and leaders from around the world. In doing so, we are preserving history through first-hand accounts, so we are proud to have Cubic as a teammate to go bold. To learn more about them and their amazing capabilities, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, let's roll the music. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I am sitting in the Admiral's office at Canadian Forces Base Esquimalt. And I'm joined with Rear Admiral Chris Robinson, who is the Commander of Maritime Forces Pacific with the Royal Canadian Navy. And he was also the Deputy Commander Combined Task Force. of Combined Task Force. Thank you very much, Admiral. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> it is totally a mouthful. It probably took me a couple of weeks before I could uh, confidently say it myself. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, I'm glad I'm not the only one. So, 
Uh, Admiral, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, so as I do with most of my guests, I, I start out by asking them, what made you join the military and why the branch that you did? Um, you've been kind enough to agree to have another chat about your current position as commander of Maritime Forces Pacific. But just for purposes of this of this conversation, if you give me a cliff notes of your... Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a, in a small... Uh dairy farming community uh, in western Quebec, just off the island of Montreal. Uh, and uh, I come from a, a family, multi, multi-generations of farmers. Um, so uh, no military uh, other, than, other than the wars, of course. And uh, I don't know why, but I was, uh, I was struck by um, the military and the sort of the meritocracy of a military where, you know, someone like me who had no connection, no particular skills or, you know, attributes that would, you know, suggest that I was in my future could work my way up. So uh, when I was going through college, I saw a movie called Das Boot. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, that is super cool. That was um, a very cool movie. But of course, Canada doesn't have a Navy. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what you thought, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, um, you know, and I'm, I'm exaggerating for a bit of effect. Of course. But um, I, I, I genuinely didn't know that Canada had submarines at that point. Um, and then uh, once I had made that connection, uh, I decided that that's what I would do uh, when I graduated from university. Um, so I joined the Navy. Uh, I'd actually been an Army Reservist for a couple of years going through college. Uh, and I, I joined the Navy and... Uh, when I went to the recruiting center, they said, you know, what are your three choices going to be? And I said, Submariner. And they well, you can't, you can't actually choose that. <laughs> All right, so what I have to choose, uh, at the time it was called a Maritime Surface and Subsurface Officer. I put Mars as my first choice. And they go, oh, what's your second and third choice? And I go, no, no. Like, submariner. if I can't be a Submariner, I'm not joining. <laughs> right, so right, right. we can play this game or not. Right. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I joined the Navy and... Uh, and I uh, went through my training and uh, and joined submarines uh, and spent most of my career in submarines. Nice, nice. Well, you've clearly done well for yourself because here you are, a two-star flag officer, or I guess in Canada's context, a two Maple Leaf <laughs> flag officer. Um, so tell me a little bit about your experience with the Rim of the Pacific exercise, Rim Pack, because this isn't your first time there. It is not my first time. Um, so I was most recently, uh, previous to this, I was at RIMPAC in uh, 2012, and I was uh, Commander Submarine Sea Training, and I was aboard the submarine Victoria, mm-hmm. and we were we were working her up. We were doing what at the time was called high readiness workups, but really the most challenging operational team training that, that we do at sea. Uh, and part of that was we actually fired a, uh, a live torpedo at a hulk and sank it. Um, so that that was my you know my impact experience from the uh, at sea side, uh, where I really it was like looking at impact through a straw. I saw specifically what I was focused on, uh, but I didn't really understand the magnitude of uh, of the impact experience. So this time when I went back as the deputy commander of the entire impact, uh, you know there were twenty five thousand people. There was. Um, there was almost 200 uh, aircraft. There was uh, 30 plus autonomous systems, 38 ships, three submarines. I mean, it was just such a huge thing, and and to keep that coordinated and, and keep the land forces, the air forces, the maritime forces, um, the special forces, all sort of working together uh, was really an amazing experience. And there was uh, 
um, 26 different countries involved. Um, so that was a, a, you know, an opportunity to work with navies and air forces and armies, I guess, that uh, we don't normally work with. So yeah, it was a really interesting experience. So I, I came away um, completely embarrassed at how simplistic my view of RIMHAC had been previously. <laughs> right, yeah. As you say, looking through it like through a straw, right? So you and I have spoken before, and I had made the comment that I think it's really impressive how Canadian officers can integrate and also lead such a large exercise. Um, RIMPAC is led by the U.S. Navy, um, but it was created by a number of nations, Canada being one of the, the first. So RIMPAC was created in 71, uh, and it was an Australian, Canadian, and U.S. exercise at the time. Right. Uh, and it uh, it sort of grew really rapidly to about a dozen plus um, nations uh, in the first 20 years or so. And then it was stagnant. Um, but in the last 10 to 15 years, it has sort of exploded and more than doubled in participants. Um, it's a pretty big uh, exercise. Um, Third Fleet always provides uh, the, the backbone of the exercise. So it's held in Third Fleet areas in, in Pearl Harbor and off of uh, San Diego. Um, we use a lot of their uh, their shore infrastructure, of course, to support it, and they generously provide a staff uh, and a commander. Hmm. The staff is actually um, it's led in the off seasons by uh, by two exchange officers, a Canadian and Australian exchange officer, who are embedded in San Diego. The new team came in this summer, sort of at the end of the exercise. They, you know, wide, eyes wide open, sort of. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they, you know, slow time turnover with the outgoing people, and then they have it, and they run uh, for Impact 2024, um, sort of full throttle. But uh, each of the nations that's participating um, gets together at the end of the exercise. So in this case, uh, in about a month, uh, we'll have a hot wash-up, mm-hmm. and they will bid for um, leadership positions in the next serial. I see. Um, but you can't just sort of randomly bid for positions. You need to have... You know, experienced various different positions uh, as a nation, in particular, uh, working your way up. So we have business rules that apply to that. Um, so if you wanted to, you know, to be the deputy CCTF, you would need to have, you know, been a component commander. And to be a component commander, you have to have been a combatant commander. You know, working working your way through it. Um, so generally, um, the uh, you have well, not generally, always the commander of third fleet is the commander of impact. Um, the deputy commander is uh, most frequently Canadian or Australian, um, and then the component commanders are also generally Australian, Canadian, or American. Uh, although the Chileans did have the Maritime Component Command uh, in '16, I believe, um, fairly recently, uh, and they they'd worked their way through it. They had done the the deputy Maritime Component Command, and then there were the um, and there's other nations that uh, that are you know uh, working their way up and. and in due course, we'll, we'll assume those kind of leadership roles. Uh, on the maritime side, the sea component commander, so the person that really controls um, the frigates and destroyers and corvettes and that kind of stuff um, in the in the larger task groups. Uh, one of them uh, was uh, a New Zealand officer mm-hmm. and that was with the amphibious task groups, with the you know the large stack amphibs, and the um, Singapore Navy provided the sea combatant commander for the. Uh, uh, the carrier um, task group. Okay. So it was a, a great opportunity, a learning opportunity. But it's good for the nations as well. Um, so we know that in 24, we'll have uh, certain positions. Mm-hmm. We'll start generating officers now to, to fill those positions and make sure they get the 
you know, the right amount of training and the right exposures and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, uh, it's really, uh, interesting, um, but also professionally rewarding experience for the nations that participate. Yeah. And you're relatively new in this position as commander of maritime forces Pacific. Um, but as a two-star admiral, now you're going into this exercise and you were the deputy for the overall exercise. Um, how did you wrap your mind around that position? And, and what was it like? Like, what did you have to do to prepare for the position prior to actually going and being feet on the ground? You know, it's a totally fair question. Um, so, you know, working with me um, were other two-star admirals. Um, so it, uh, I think it really speaks to Canadian strengths. Um, we're by nature collaborative and, and we agree with each other and we, we try to build a consensus and build a team. Mm-hmm. And when you're working multilaterally, um, you really have to do it that way because it's not like I can order, um, you know, the Republic of South Korea to do something that they don't really want to do. Right. Um, or, you know, I can't, uh, tell the Australian, uh, amphib commander that I want him to do something that, you know, just doesn't make sense, right? Like you, you have to, even in the military, um, it's not an absolute hard and fast do this or not. Um, so that, that's part of it. I mean, professional development, um, most uh, most Canadian flag officers uh, early in their, their tenure as a flag officer do the Maritime Component Commanders course, which is uh, held four times a year. It's sponsored by the various numbered fleets. Um, I was lucky enough to have done um, my uh, Maritime Component Commanders course uh, in Pearl Harbor. Okay. Uh, so sponsored by PACOM. Um, and one of my classmates there was the Australian who was the one-star Maritime Component Commander. And he's also a friend of mine from, from when I did war college a number of years ago. Sure. So I had, you know, the professional uh, training and education uh, and the mindset. Um, to get specifically ready for impact, there is uh, a series of conferences uh, that, that do the planning, so the initial and main planning conferences. I attended the final planning conference, so sort of shaped how the exercise was going to run. Mm-hmm. And then that's played uh, into a week-long staff exercise where... We effectively practiced the command and control um, sequences and networks that we would use at sea and, and ran it through a series of scenarios to, you know, to practice how mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. So that. That was how I got ready. Interesting. Once you arrive uh, in Pearl Harbor, um, you know, I'm familiar with from the air side, you know, there's chaos, right? Yeah. Combined air operations centers. How are exercises like RIMPAC quarterbacked? from the maritime side, from from all of these different sides. And I'd love for you to also define for our listeners um, the difference between joint and combined. (laughs) (laughs) Now I hope I don't mess it up. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, chaos, uh, absolutely. Um, So, a large exercise like this, you know, starting at the top, there's a commander combined task force. Mm -hmm. Um, And combined means that it is um, different nations participating, and then joint means that it is... uh, different services. So uh, Army and Navy working together as joint, uh, Canadian and U.S. Uh, working together as combined. Gotcha. Um, so uh, at the very top level, you have a, an operations uh, room, much much like a chaos, mm-hmm. um, that is uh, run, you know, the combined 
task force uh, operations from, uh, and then working directly for that, you had the CAOC, uh, which in this particular case was run by a, a Canadian one-star, uh, Mark Golden out of Winnipeg. Yes, uh, uh, he's actually one of the guests on this podcast. Yeah, no, he's an yeah. awesome guy. Yes, uh, Mark did a yeah. great job. Yeah, um, and his deputy was Australian, um, and then on on the maritime side, the Australian. Paul O'Grady was the Commodore, and then he had a Canadian deputy, uh, Doug Layton. Um, so because Vimpac is a very maritime-heavy exercise, uh, you know, the bulk of the watchkeeping and, and the work uh, was done in the Maritime Operations Centre, so the MCC's uh, command centre. Mm-hmm. Um, but the KOC clearly runs 24-7 and, and deconflicts that 180 aircraft uh, and uh, autonomous and remotely piloted systems. The Army uh, Land Forces Command um, also ran their own headquarters, but they didn't have a standing headquarters like ours. Uh, it was mostly subdivided into two types of stuff. So there was small teams working on the island and practicing small team drills. And there was the embarked Amphib team uh, on the Amphibs who were command and controlled by the Amphibs. Right. So that was sort of it. So 24-7, there was uh, three headquarters uh, ashore running right. all the time, um, two of them on Ford Island, which is that big island in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Air Force ran theirs out of Hickam, uh, right. which is just off the island. Yeah, yeah. I- impressive. And one of the things that I always marvel at, at exercises of this scale, and RIMPAC is the largest naval exercise in the world, is... All of these different countries coming together and operating together, from your perspective, it was from a command and control side, but just integrating and operating, like it's got to be a huge, um, well, obviously logistics is, is always so important in any of these things, but in terms of command and control and communications, how do you get all of these people working and talking on the same page and just deconflicting and being safe? So RIMPAC, I mean, it has tactical operational level goals, of course. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the metric that we measure RIMPAC's success is um, that no one got hurt, that the environment didn't get hurt, and that all 26 nations achieved their individual training objectives. Um, so integrating together as a team is really one of the things that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to do. And it, it seems... You know, really basic, like really you can't come together and work as a team, but figuring out how to communicate with, you know, 26 nations, uh, all those ships and submarines that see the aircraft, people use different radio frequencies, they have different crypto, they have, you know, even different ways of, you know, formatting messages and, and how they ask for things or, you know, things that they don't ask for that they just assume, you know, they have permission to do, which in an exercise of this scale, clearly, you know, we need, we need some control on that. Right. Uh, and first language was not always English as well, so that, you know, provided uh, a challenge as well. So it was uh, the first, so RIMPAC really runs in three phases, and the first phase is a harbor phase. So everyone shows up, the ships uh, all come into harboring, and to get 38 ships and three submarines into the harbor, uh, takes two days, uh, and <laughs> right. so if you, if you sit, you know, at, at Hickam at the uh, at the uh, commercial airport there, you can watch the ships sort of stacking up at fifteen to twenty minute intervals and all coming right. in. Uh, it's really an impressive thing to see. Yeah. Uh, but while that's happening um, on the shore side, the, you know, we, we start with what we call leveling exercises, but it's really onboarding, right? So you've you've brought in all these new teams. Many of them have never worked together. They've some of them have never even been outside of their countries before. Uh, and we start with uh, effectively classrooms. Hmm. So we make sure that everyone has the same level of knowledge. So if a red flare goes off uh, in a task group exercise, 
we all understand that, that means there's a submarine emergency, and we understand that there's you know a series of, of steps that you know every ship and and the staff need to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do all that. Um, that phase of the exercise that we call the import of the harbor phase um, runs for about two weeks, and it's probably most famous uh, for all the cocktail parties that happen. So every country <laughs> hosts a national reception on board their ship. Awesome. Um, so every night there is a different, uh, increasingly more lavish affair <laughs> that you go to. Uh, and and because the excess becomes so big, um, there's now lunchtime events as well. <laughs> Awesome. So I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm larger than when I went to Rimpac, and I did my very, very best. But uh, there's just so much really good food and entertainment, and, and there's dancing troops, and there's music, and it's uh, it's a great event. But it it gets you know the imagination going. But it the focus of the import phase is really those uh, those classes, those small party tasks, uh, leading to uh, teams that can execute uh, very demanding uh, programs. Right. You know, going Mark. Uh, probably would have talked about uh, you know running a air tasking order uh, for 180 aircraft flying multi hundreds of sorties a day uh, with a multinational team uh, many of whom had never worked together before right um, I don't know how he did it he, he did it and his team did it and it was very successful and safe yeah it was impressive and I recommend all of our listeners to listen to that episode which is already live um, but yeah it just the whole scale of it is 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 incredible. And so after this kind of first initial phase? So after the first phase, the ship's all um, sortie. So it takes two days as well for them to all to get, get out of board. <laughs> um, but they're, they're right at it. As soon as, as, soon as they sail, they, they start with individual ship exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, maybe one ship and one aircraft type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, through that, uh, that integration training uh, phase, they work their way up to being able to fight as teams. Uh, and that sort of parlays into a, um, a last couple of day tactical phase where it's it's free play war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, as soon as the harbor phase is over, they're they're right into it, um, and and the headquarters and the watch floors, uh, of course, have all closed up and started working several days before to get all that going. One of the things that is done to facilitate this this working together is all of the senior commanders. Uh, lived in an eight-building multiplex, uh, so sort of a barracks that was divided into eight apartments, if you will. Okay. So, you know, Mark Golden was my next-door neighbor. He's the air component commander. Right. The maritime component commander was his next-door neighbor. Both of the deputies were there. Um, The Japanese vice uh, commander uh, who who ran the um, humanitarian assistance disaster relief was on the far corner, um, so it's an H-hut. We had a little barbecue in the front, and we would go out, and we would uh, socialize, and we would solve problems because, you know, things happen in the middle of the night. It, it was really effective way to build a relationship. I was a bit lucky in that uh, I'm a graduate of the Naval War College in, in Port Rhode Island, and two of my classmates, one was the Maritime Component Commander, and the other was the Vice Commander, the, the Humanitarian Assistance Commander, uh, and we had worked, to, well, we were friends and we'd worked together previously. Um, so we instantly had that bond. And, and of course, our spouses are all friends and we've visited to see each other right. over the years. So it was uh, it was a really good experience. Yeah, it, that team building is part of, I guess, what RIMPAC is really all about. Having those professional affiliations and connections, developing them, growing them, I think that's part of what the objective is because 
unlike decades previous where navies were much larger and perhaps you would deploy a task group all on your own, um, now it doesn't appear that way. Everyone seems to be going into kind of a coalition construct or, or a joint task group cons- construct. Or a combined, combined task group. Absolutely. You know, we had uh, two Canadian frigates were there. Uh, Vancouver and Winnipeg were both there. Uh, But for them to exercise, you know, know, this scale of of exercise uh, can only happen in a place like RIMPAC. Um, Partly because RIMPAC has, you know, so many ships that are brought together. And partly because the training areas off of Pearl Harbor uh, and those islands are just, it's deep water, it's... Uh, relatively quiet water, um, so there's not a lot of uh, you know commercial traffic passing through and all that kind of stuff, which enables uh, anti-submarine warfare uh, to be conducted in a much more realistic environment. There's really good missile ranges. There's uh, multiple airports for all the uh, aircraft to fly out of. Um, Mark would have probably told you in, in his uh, interview that we used all but one parking spot on the island. So, we, you know, <laughs> we, we could have squeezed in one more aircraft than we had, um, but that was it for the, you know, for the big island. Yeah. Um, so it, you, you couldn't find a better place in the world to hold an exercise like this. Uh, and I really can't say enough good things about how gracious uh, the U.S. Third Fleet and Indo-PACOM were to, to organize this, to host it, to you know, provide every assistance necessary to the participating nations to ensure that they all had a successful event. One of the things that happened uh, while we were there was uh, one of the frigates had a fire. Oh, really? And uh, it was a fairly significant uh, engine room fire. Um, and uh, within you know minutes of that happening, uh, the multinational force that was around it had, had sent uh, helicopters and assistance and I think it was a nurse was sent over an anesthesiologist and you know some of your readers would probably realize that when uh, sailors suffer and when anyone suffers a burn one of your biggest concerns is you're going to lose the airways right because uh, the shock and then yes. blows up yep. and they were able to get a medical professional over immediately to do that and they went over on this uh, super tiny little French helicopter that operates off the French OPV that was there uh, and it was uh yeah, those two, uh, it was a Peruvian ship, uh, those two sailors that were significantly injured, a large part of, uh, of the success of recovering them was how well this multinational team came together in a sense of urgency and, uh, and helped them. Wow. Wow. Unfortunate that it happened, but lucky on the, on the flip side that there was all those assets and people available to, to help. Um, thank goodness for that. But it was a great example of collaboration. So Peruvian Navy had bought this ship um, from South Korea, mm-hmm. and the South Korean uh, Amphib Task Group Commander uh, had been a previous CEO of this class of ship, and uh, so they offered all kinds of technical assistance. Uh, the Americans, of course, uh, offered up everything they could, um, and the the team itself. Um, overcame really significant odds um, to, to save their ship. It was, uh, even though it's a very serious accident and, and the injured sailors were, were very deeply injured, but uh, I think it's sort of proof of uh, the value of these relationships and, and working together to, you know, real-world events happen at short notice. Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. Um, you mentioned that part of the exercise is meant to develop, uh, I guess, tactics or validate tactics and well, perhaps it's the other way around. Validate tactics and maybe develop some new tactics. Um, what are some of the key aspects in that context that you can recall for from RIMPAC 2022? So 
once once the ships have sailed and they're out doing the integration training and and the second season, you know, the the serialized warfighter. Um, in between that, there is the, the ranges are you know constantly happening. There was two hulks that were sunk. There was a number of missile firings and gun firings and all that kind of stuff, um, and also anti-submarine warfare uh, torpedo firings. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, from a Canadian context, we we did a, a number of exercises uh, on the range where we were testing uh, um, our electronic warfare in particular uh, and how we react to certain uh, threat scenarios. Mm-hmm. We had a, a team from the Canadian Force of Maritime Warfare Center in Halifax embarked on that, uh, also embarked for the, the missile firings. And the things that we learned from, from all of those events allowed us to validate some of our tactical procedures and also to improve them. Um, so they, we learned some things from some of those scenarios. The team went back to Halifax. They sort of tweaked the software a little bit. And when we came in uh, at the end of the exercise, so you know, about three weeks later, I guess, um, that team from the Warfare Center was on the jetty, uh, ready to go on board the ships, give them the updated software, teach them, you know, hey, this is what we learned and this is what you need to do, uh, and ensure that the, uh, you know, Winnipeg and Vancouver went out the door uh, on the projection deployment, that much better prepared to deal with real-world threats. So that, that kind of um, OODA loop, um, you know, observe, orient, decide, Act. Um, the whole thing is, you know, intended to tighten that looping and get, you know, discover a problem through to solve it uh, as fast as we can and, and impact. Uh, because of the, the fidelity of the ranges uh, and because of the threats that can be emulated there, really is the premier way to do that. Um, so there's a whole bunch of um, that kind of stuff was done. Yeah, I, I think that is that's awesome. It, it, you know, it's exactly what you want, especially with the the fact that those ranges are instrumented and and that you have that yeah you know, I guess access to that information and those metrics. Um, I think it's great that that OODA loop cycle was accelerated, um, which is what you want to see. Um, if we were to kind of take it from a, a larger perspective, not just Canada's focused. You know, there's all these different nations coming together, and the U.S. obviously being a big one. Um, I think this impact had the largest unmanned surface vessel participation, and that was one of my guests also for the podcast, um, Commander Jeremiah Daly. He spoke about the unmanned surface vessels that the U.S. Navy brought out for RIMPAC, which was really, really fascinating. Um, but I suspect everybody had their own training objectives and their own tactical objectives. But are there any other big ones that you can kind of think of? So, you know, I was just speaking purely from a, a Canadian perspective there. But there was um, a number of uh, missile firings and torpedo firings. And for me, you know, personally, it was really interesting to see, like, Exocet missiles being fired because right. they're not yeah. normally a missile that we that we work with. For sure. Um, but so when you start the planning for impact, the initial planning conference, everyone brings a list of, of what they want to achieve. Okay. Uh, and that is, you know, refined. And we track that. We have a really large sync matrix um, that we, you know, effectively go through the list and check it twice to make sure that we provide those scenarios to, um, to every nation to try and achieve uh, their kind of uh, training events. I mean, RIMPAC um, sort of has two big thrusts, if you will. One is obviously maritime warfighting. Um, but the other is humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Right. Um, so during the that initial phase, while the ships are out and the aircraft are out learning to, to work together, um, 
the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief exercise happens at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is controlled by a Japanese uh, two-star admiral, mm-hmm. uh, Rear Admiral Hirata in this case, um, and it culminates in a mass casualty exercise that the state of Hawaii uses to certify. Uh, their teams. Uh, oh, uh, smart. It's a really interesting thing, and you know, um, amongst the uh, the first from that one uh, was were you Starling for the first time? Oh, um, so interesting. To to make it as realistic as possible, yep. they're intense mm-hmm. out on Port Island, like living on the ground. Right. Uh, we have uh, participants from you know all kinds of uh, non governmental organizations that would actually participate in these types of exercises, mm-hmm. and they show up, and yeah, it it it. Um, it leads to the, the state certification. And we do the state certification partly because it adds realism to it, and partly it's a thank you to Hawaii for you know putting up with and, and tolerating this uh, fairly large imposition. Right. Um, but uh, I have a list of firsts here that I, you know, that, that were achieved. Um, the Australian uh, amphib ship, uh, the Canberra, embarked to U.S. Marine Corps Osprey. So the Osprey are the aircraft that right the vertical the yeah, tilt rotor, fly yeah. Like air. yeah. Uh, awesome, awesome super, aircraft. Uh, yeah. um, the first uh, Malaysian uh, live missile firing outside of Malaysian waters happened. Wow, uh, that was uh, the Malaysian ship uh, like here, mm-hmm. uh, and we actually had the Malaysian CNO uh, in the ops, the maritime ops center. Uh, watching on the screen, the firing happened, and yeah. uh, you know the CEO had had shared afterwards that uh, it was his third um, missile firing, and uh, the first two, for various reasons, hadn't gone totally according <laughs> to plans. So there was a fair amount of tension. I'm, I'm thinking on that ship, and you know, happily uh, for for everyone, uh, it was a great shot, and it, it hit a bullseye. So that was uh, really good. Awesome. Um, I seem to recall, and it, it could be from a RIMPAC previous, but I seem to recall that there was um, ground-based air defenses that were exercised aboard, like, a landing dock ship. Now, that could have been a previous RIMPAC, but uh, I know that, like, you know, U.S. ground-based air defenses would actually, you know, put, like, a, I don't think it was, like, a Patriot battery, but it was something akin to that on, on board a ship and, and fire it off. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and I know that there's a missile that the U.S. is exercising, uh, the Naval Strike Missile, and I don't know if that was tested during this RIMPAC either, but there are some interesting new capabilities and, I guess, concepts being developed because in the U.S. context, uh, I know that they talk a lot about agile combat employment, specifically the Air Force, where they want to be responsive to what's happening and they want to be agile and not predictable. So I'm wondering if anything like that was kind of exercised in RIMPAC, whether it be the air side or anything else. Yeah, um, so it was. um a, a large part of the exercise objectives dealt around experimentation, um, and there was uh, multinational um, firings from shore to sea, from air to sea, from sea to air, like any combination you could think of. Right. Uh, and the whole thing sort of uh, culminated with an amphib landing uh, on the eastern side of the island. Um, and at the end of the amphib island uh, landing, um, there was a demonstration uh, by the U.S. Marine Corps of their new capability. Um, effectively, they landed 
uh, transport aircraft, um, and they rolled off a missile battery off the back of it. They set it up. Uh, they conducted a simulated firing and then packed it all up and left. Uh, and they do that uh, really quickly. Um, and that is, you know, that is all about the you know, Marine Littoral Regiment um, concept that they've come up with and how they're employing that. So I'm, it's not really my lane to talk about what, what they were firing or how they were firing it, but sure. it certainly it was part of the exercise. Nice. I, I think we learned a fair amount out of that. Um, it, it's a very interesting capability. The Ghost Fleet as well, you know, going back to Commander Daly, was a really interesting um, thing to do. Like, we've moved long past the point where we're worried about, you know, um, autonomous and remotely piloted ships going out there and bouncing off of other ships and all that. I mean, right. There's still stuff to be learned there, too. Sure. But now it's how do you control them? How do you retask them? How do you... Uh, you know, optimize uh, repair capabilities, have you sustain them in the field, um, all that kind of um, really difficult uh, theoretical work needs to be done, and the only way you can do it is to, to have exercises where you go out and practice it and, and do it. So Right, right. So as you come away from this whole experience, um, what are your principal takeaways from BRIMPAC 2022? And being the deputy, um, and how how will you take some of those things that you learned and put it into your day to day work here as commander of Maritime Forces Pacific and to the greater Royal Canadian Navy enterprise? Yeah, no, totally. So I, I had discussed the the TTP changes that we had made, um, but uh, for me, uh, an exercise like RIMPAC really is about the partnerships and the collaborative adaptive partners um, that are that are there um, and, and maintaining those so that if there is you know a typhoon that hits a nation or if there is you know some other kind of event where we're unexpectedly thrown together or you know if um, we need to work together and you know in support of military objectives we know each other we know how to work together um, we also know what doesn't work. Um, oh yeah, right. So there, there's going to be a, a final uh, hot wash up here in about a month and a half, mm-hmm. where we're going to get together. The, the leadership is going to get together, and we're going to talk about what we learned, um, what didn't go super well, and we need to sort of focus on how we're going to make it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise anyone that you know a lot of the learned lessons out of uh, out of exercise like this all deal with communication. Uh, and not just you know the technical. We use different you know uh, radio systems. We use different crypto, but we talk differently. We use different uh, ways to ask for things. We um, communicate at different times. We communicate at different uh, frequency, and by frequency I mean you know intervals of time. Mm-hmm. Like that whole getting to know how we work together. Uh, I would really like to see us get to a place where. Uh, once RIMPAC is over, um, that we continue to work together in those structures. Um, and, you know, it, to me, th- there would be a lot of value that comes out of that. And, you know, when RIMPAC ended, the ships didn't just all disperse and go back to their, you know, to their home ports. Uh, Vancouver and Winnipeg deployed um, uh, independently, mm-hmm. um, but with other, you know, in a combined fashion. So they went with... Uh, uh, one of them went with the Australians. The, uh, the other one uh, went with the Japanese. Uh, they did an exercise with the Chilean ship just after they left. Like they continued to work together, and I would like to see that that grow. Uh, but you know, the contacts that that I've made and the commander of Third Fleet, uh, 
was even newer to the job than I was at that point. He'd just come in uh, okay. about a week or so before we back oh. started. Oh, wow. Uh, but he is my closest contact, right? He is the flag officer just to the south of us. We both have responsibility for um, this side of the Pacific. Right. Um, so it was a great chance to, to learn from him, to to see uh, really a master at work. Um, he, uh, like I personally learned a lot about how he ran meetings, how, you know, what he, he needed to know, what his uh, information trips were when he got excited about things and when he didn't. So it, right. it, it yeah. really was an opportunity for me to reflect on, you know, the art of admiralship, uh, if you will. Yeah. Um, but I would say the, the biggest takeaways were the, the need to work together, the, the value of these exercises, and, and the value of taking things through to the end. Um, so we, we, you know, in the military we talk about a detect-to-engage sequence. So, you know, the, the unit is out there, you know, doing nothing, sort of searching, it finds a target, it identifies it, it gets a tracking solution on it, it fires a weapon. Um, and that's all stuff that we practice fairly routinely. But you need to know that when the weapon is fired, that it goes all the way through to exploding. Uh, and so, so doing those kind of live firing uh, exercises has a real payback for us. Uh, and I was you know, mentioning earlier that um, you know, World War II, the American submarines had problems with their exploders mm-hmm. uh, because they had fired lots of exercise weapons, but they had never fired it through to, you know, to blow things up. Uh, and the German uh, U-boat submarines in World War II also had uh, torpedo issues uh, for very similar reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of these lessons that um, we need to keep emphasizing um, is you learn things when you fire uh, live ordnance and, and see how it reacts. Uh, we fired missiles, uh, torpedoes, guns uh, from Canadian ships and aircraft on this side. And we learn things. Mm. Um, some pretty important things in one in one particular case. Um, so you know, it's it's good to know how things work. So yeah, yeah, the the value of working together, the value of of doing things uh, all the way through, uh, and the value of working in real world conditions. I guess would be the a third point I would throw in there. Um, the final phase was not uh, we didn't refer to it as a free play um, phase. Um, it really was uh, an opportunity to provide a, a series of inputs, and, and we built this scenario. You know, that it started as fairly benign, couple of nations, fictitious nations weren't getting along through piracy and that kind of stuff, up to uh, all-out conflict and, and an amph- amphib scenario. Uh, and it was a it was a great learning opportunity for sort of the ship command team and above uh, for the last couple of days to to really practice something that is difficult, um, but you can't do unless you have 38 ships around you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that helps for sure. It, it helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if somebody were to, to listen to this, a flag officer, what would be your advice to them, you know, if they're coming in and uh, into an exercise like RIMPAC? I think that the most important thing to do is to build those relationships really early. Um, you know, to meet your opposite numbers, to have a coffee with them, to discuss things, um, to understand uh, what they're like as people uh, and what they're like professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything from how they like to, to run meetings through to um, what their national caveats are. Um, you know, not every flag officer that shows up is coming from a country that uh, allows them to do the same things that we do or, or vice versa. Um, so it's really 
um, building that kind of stuff. And I would say, you know, for for a Canadian flag officer or indeed most of our allied uh, flag officers, this is all stuff that is second nature for them. Uh, so I would conclude by saying just trust your gut. Um, you got this. Sweet. Well, uh, Rear Admiral Chris Robinson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, sir. Um, it's been enlightening, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to to the next big exercise that you yeah, that you too. work on. It was my pleasure. Though. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, sir. That, my friends, was Rear Admiral Chris Robinson of the Royal Canadian Navy. If you have any questions for us at Gold Bold, please write to us at goldboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.